Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and we have made it to another Friday, whatever that means. Today's show is full of good stuff. We're going to tell you why it might be a good idea to put your phone down for one day every week. And you're going to learn a new way to make sense of some of your maybe less than delightful life experiences. Plus, of course, we've got a couple book recommendations for you. But first, we're going to have a conversation about the week we just survived, at least so far, with two of my favorite humans. Ariane Nettles is a journalism lecturer at Northwestern University. Ariane, hey. Hi. And Patrick Smith is a criminal justice reporter at WBEZ. Hey, Pat. Hey, Greta. Um, Okay, so I think we should start with the big story from this week, which is that Google is being sued by the Justice Department. The Justice Department is saying the company is monopolizing web search and search advertising. This is huge. It's actually the biggest challenge to big tech in almost two decades. Google's defense is that there's plenty of other search options out there. Kent Walker is the company's chief legal officer, and he says, quote, people use Google because they choose Google, not because they're forced to or because they can't find alternatives. So I thought I would start by Pat, like, can you name two other search engines? <laughs> uh, Bing, I think uh-huh, still exists. Uh-huh. And uh, does ask.com still exist? I, uh, yeah, I Yahoo. Yahoo is definitely still around. So Ariane, are you a Google person? Like, I feel like it's hard not to be these days. Really. I mean, I am such a Google person. Like I have a Google home. Oh, and wow. so I mean, like just the connectivity of Google is just really beneficial for me. I feel like life is so stressful that any way you can make it easier for me to log into something or connect to something. I'm like so stressed all the time. I'm like, I need it. But also I am kind of like, I have the cynicism that, Everybody has all my information anyways. So why it should just at least be good for me. Like I should have some type of benefit. It should at least be convenient. (laughs) That's an interesting way of looking at it. So I'm curious how much you two think about your internet hygiene. Like, are you anonymous browser people? Are you like cash and cookies? Pat, how much do you think about that stuff? I mean, I like, oh man, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm making the terrible joke. I like cash and cookies, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> both. I, really I tried to stop myself, but <laughs> I had to just do. Uh, I, I think that isn't private browsing like kind of a, like, what does that really do? For, I mean, it hides what you did from like, the, anyone else who uses your From computer, yourself. I guess, and yourself. <laughs> but otherwise, I don't think it has does anything. I, yeah. I don't do any of that stuff. I Actually, the data collection scares me a bunch, and I think it's like definitely the thing that will eventually lead to our downfall as the human race, probably. Oh, okay. But also no feel deal. like it's the uh-huh. only way to exist in modern society is to, to do it, and that there's really not... Uh, I don't know. I feel like the most... The safest thing would be to go live in a cabin in the woods and never use the internet, and I'm not going to do that. And so then right. I, I'm not going with any half measures either. I'm just kind of accepting that they 
have everything on me. So is it acceptance, though, or avoidance? You know, like, are you just trying not to think about it or are you at peace with it? Yeah, I am at peace. You are at peace? I am at peace. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm safe in certain things. Like, I'm, I might be more safe about, like, you know, certain bank information and financial stuff. But at the end of the day, as the world gets crazier and crazier, you got to, like, figure out what you could push out. Like, I can't worry about everything. <laughs> it's like a hierarchy of stress. Exactly. So I am at peace, um, which is strange because probably if you asked me, like, two years ago, I would have been like, this is crazy. This <laughs> access to me. And then it's like, I, I don't care. <laughs> Help me log in faster. (laughs) (laughs) Another story that blew up this week, especially on media Twitter, is about Jeffrey Tubin, a legal analyst for CNN and The New Yorker, who's actually been suspended from his job at The New Yorker for allegedly masturbating during a work meeting on Zoom, which is just like the most ridiculous story. Um, It's also the perfect story for a Twitter pylon. Um, What I'm curious to ask you two about is not whether we should be wearing pants during Zoom meetings, because I would like to assume that we all think wearing pants during Zoom meetings is a good idea. Um, But I'm curious about sort of like where this fits in on like the Me Too spectrum. I think you could make the argument that there, there weren't victims in this situation as obviously as there are in situations like your Harvey Weinstein or even your Louis C.K., But it's still like, obviously, at least I think, like super unprofessional behavior. Um, It is sexual misconduct. I'm curious, like what happens next with this? What do you think the appropriate consequence should be? Like, Pat, should this guy still have a job? No, of course not. Of course he should be fired. That's, I mean, the fact that there are actually people out there, I think it's only people who are like really online who are writing these takes about like, he made a mistake, leave him alone, is like, what are you talking about? Of course he should be fired. And maybe he wasn't doing it maliciously. He was just being gross and inappropriate. But who cares? You're not allowed to be gross and inappropriate like when you're in meetings with coworkers. Yeah, of course he should be fired. What do you think, Ari? I mean, he definitely has to go. Like, at this point, my biggest thing would be, like, so I'm on this probably million-hour Zoom call. I'm tired, too. I would like to lay down. I would like to rest. I would like to watch Netflix. But, no, I'm on this Zoom call. And not only do I have to be on this Zoom call, you're not working. Like, I'm working on this Zoom call, and I got to look at that stuff? No. (laughs) See? It's like, that's like double thing, right? Yeah. It's just so wild that there's even a discussion. And this man is like, I think he's like the example that cancel culture clearly doesn't exist because he just got, you know, they would have got rid of a lower level employee so fast, but he's just like, oh, he's just, you know, on suspension or I forgot what they actually called it. Like, that's pretty ridiculous. Get rid of them. And and, and Greta, you said there weren't victims. I mean, there aren't victims. Like, yeah, somebody who accidentally saw or somebody who happened to see this is not a victim the same way that a victim of sexual assault is. But there right. are victims. I mean... Yeah. Oh, for I can't imagine how traumatic that would be. I want to be very clear about that. But I think it's, you know, it's not as clear cut as a lot of these other cases, which is what I was kind of trying to mm-hmm. get at with that, you know? Yeah, and, you know, like what you bring up, like intent doesn't really matter. You know, when we talk about harassment in general, whether it mm-hmm. is sexual harassment or... um unknowing biases that we have like intent has no it it doesn't matter um but i do think that also there were so many intentional steps before you get to that step um it's just ridiculous and we had so many ridiculous stories this year like (laughs) 
I just was like, okay, I I can't believe it. How, How did we end up where that was like, like now Giuliani, since that happened, we've had the Giuliani Borat thing. Uh, and I, this is a sign that I'm online too much, but the Fort Bragg official Fort Bragg account was like tweeting to porn accounts. Like how is it that only in the last like day and a half, there've already been two other creepy men scandals. I guess it's just that men are creepy is the, is the how and why. (laughs) Well, it's nice to hear you say that Pat, that makes me feel slightly less crazy anyway. Um, Ari, I think you kind of hinted at something that's, that is really interesting that, is also kind of connected to this story, though obviously what Tubin did is a very extreme example. But I think in this era where very many of us are working from home, there is a lot more gray area around what is acceptable professional behavior. And again, to be very clear, I do not think what Tubin did was remotely acceptable or professional. But I really like doing dishes during all staff meetings. And I was just wondering if either of you has like a a weird but not extremely creepy thing that you have done during a work Zoom call. Pat? Uh, I really like to cook. Uh, That's one of the things that I've been doing working from home, like make I I had French toast this morning for breakfast. And so I will often do that during Zoom meetings, even ones where I should be participating a fair amount. It's like I will like mute myself and turn my video off enough time to go stir something and then run back. Oh yeah. Uh, and then I also just like to go for walks. If, if, if it's, if it's a meeting where I'm only going to be listening, then I'm, I'm walking around. Usually. Oh, that's amazing. I still have not left the house during a meeting, but that sounds pretty great. It's fantastic. What about you, Ariane? <laughs> I mean, I really like to deep condition my hair. Oh, good one. You know, and I can like throw that on. And depending on the deep condition that I'm doing, you know, I can maybe even, you know, I can have the camera back on. You don't know I'm deep conditioning. You just, oh, it's just pulled back in the bun, you know? Mm-hmm. You That's don't perfect. know. perfect. Are you deep conditioning right now? I am not because I have braids <laughs> in. But otherwise, this would have been a good deep condition day. I mean, nobody's going to see me like ever again in life or at least until next year. But like my skin is good. My You're hair is good. I don't care if we're zooming or not. Like these things have to get done. Like the regimen must go on, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so another thing I wanted to talk to y'all about is this movie that came out last week. It's on Netflix. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. It got a lot of attention partly because it was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, It also has an all-star cast. A lot of people are saying it's like prime Oscar fodder whenever the Oscars ever happen again. This takes place in 1968 into 69. The Democratic National Convention in 68 was held here in Chicago, and it was super intense, right? This, This is the era of Vietnam War protests. Racial tension in the U.S. throughout that decade was really intense. Um, Everything kind of converged on the city. And the movie is about how the violent demonstrations unfolded and the men who were accused of starting them. The three of us are here in Chicago, so I think there's some like special significance for us. But I think it's also a really timely movie in terms of protests for racial equity and, you know, just like heightened political tensions, let's say. Ariane, I want to start with you because you actually reviewed this movie for the Chicago Reader. Yes. Um, What did you think? So I really liked it, but I also know that I went into the film with the understanding, like not expecting this to be a documentary. Right. This is a fictionalized account. This is is a fictionalized account. And I think that... Um, that was really important to like kind of have that lens because if I had gone in expecting everything to be 
accurate, then it would have like maybe upset me a little bit. But I really liked it because I went in with the lens saying, okay, if everything I feel like it's in the spirit of what happened. Mm. Um, and so even though there are a lot of things that did not happen on the correct timeline, they may have happened at some time during the trial, but in a different way. So it's like, okay, well, this person would have said this in real life or did say a version of this. So I'll be okay with it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, you bring up a really important point about how timely it feels because even, um, one thing that I do really like about how the film started, especially was that it really intertwined a lot of real archival footage. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of that footage felt so similar to this summer. You know, um, even just, you know, police standing in Grant Park and surrounding protesters and making it so that there is no place to go. Like these are all things that we've seen this summer. Um, And so it makes you kind of it gives you all these emotions that maybe you don't expect to feel in something that was supposed to have taken place or in in the course did take place in 1968. And so I do think that this was like a good watch and if anything I think that they gave you enough of the real stuff for you to then go and research on your own and so even if it is just encouraging you to go to I mean, Google, because I don't think you're going to go to Bing or <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Patrick, you said Ask Jeeves might be around. It's just know. Ask.com now. Ask the that. Jeeves part disappeared. But he was, Jeeves was the best part <laughs> I of know, that. Jeeves was great. <laughs> but yeah, you got to look it up. Go to at your preferred search engine and um, get some more details on the true happenings. And I think that um, that is what fiction should do it should kind of encourage us to go and do more and find more and look for more yeah so pat what did you think are you are you like a sorkin guy i'm not a sorkin guy for the most part um i think uh he often runs a little too cheesy for me uh but i will say um and there's also all sorts of other problems that even rear their head in this movie like his inability to write female characters or even Uh uh the fact that he's almost Mm -hmm. uninterested in writing female characters it seems like um Mm -hmm. But I will say I am a sucker for a courtroom drama and mm. I I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I think um I think like you know, you spend some time thinking about it. I read Ari's piece and other things, and there's definitely like criticisms I would have of it, but to be honest, I I I liked it a lot. I thought that this like really fit into Sorkin's strength, I think, to write this where you've got some real source material. The trial itself was this circus. I mean, one thing that I thought was was interesting that stood out to me. And the things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, maybe where the sort of Sorkin flourishes, like for some reason, having the the federal uh, prosecutor be like, you know, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt and he's sort of like torn. Yeah, he's like kind of a good guy, but he has to do this. Yeah, I don't think it's historically accurate at all. I think that that sort of uh, just like is goes to Sorkin's sympathies that like, well, people in power are actually good and nice ultimately. I will say the thing about Sorkin, I I totally agree. I think you had mentioned it, Pat, that like he can get really heavy handed with like high minded arguments around like democracy and society and revolution. But it's funny because like as I'm rolling my eyes, I'm also sobbing because it just gets me every time. I don't know what he does and I kind of hate it, but it's I also think it's amazing. Well, well there's that part where um, Tom Hayden's ca- character like confronts, you know, Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman. Yes, exactly. And winning elections. That's the first thing on your wish list equality justice education poverty and progress they're second if you don't win elections it doesn't matter what's second 
that I, I think you can tell that's what Sorkin believes and wanted to get it's that like, in there. Oh, there's the nut graph. Yep. And I'm like, oh, yeah. great. We get hit. But then also it's a well-written speech. Like it's, it's a persuasive argument. I'm not, I don't yeah. know that I agree with it, but it's, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to write those things. Yeah, he sure does. Ariane Nettles, Patrick Smith. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank, thank you. you. It was a blast. So I don't know about y'all, but I am finding the world to be a pretty stressful place these days. You can pick from any number of reasons. There's at least half a dozen at any given moment, let alone the fact that we are rapidly approaching a general election during a time of social unrest. And, you know, just to top it all off, a global pandemic. There are obviously a lot of different ways to deal with that kind of stress. Many of you will not be at all surprised here that one excellent coping mechanism I highly recommend is just to read a million books. So I asked Molly Young, who's a book critic for New York Magazine, about what books she would recommend if I wanted to burrow into some pages and not look up out of my literary hole until, I don't know, at least the second week of November, right? She told me about two particular stress coping reading strategies. One is just to lean in and the other is to lean out. There are people who, when they're in a sad mood, gravitate towards sad music because the music uh-huh. like justifies and kind of vindicates and validates their emotional state. Yeah, totally. It's like a sonic aura of vibe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then there's people who, when they're in a sad mood, they want to listen to like happy pop music to distract themselves. Mm-hmm. I found that the same is true with books. There are people who escape by like delving deeper into a version of the present. And then there's people who escape by going as far away from it as possible. Molly has already read and finished 83 books this year. And I asked her about two books that she could recommend one for each of those types of person. Okay, so this isn't this is less a sad book than a book with a mood that very much reflects the present mood of kind of panicked suspense and disbelief which is fair enough a novel called leave the world behind and it's by a writer named ruman alam and oh yes i just read this it was amazing dude it's so good right yeah it's excellent (laughs) so this book came out on october 6th it's pretty recent and it's about a Mm -hmm. family that rents this luxurious house um through airbnb in a remote area of i think it's long island and A day or two after this family arrives, the house's owners show up without warning. And the reasons why they show up and the situation that unfolds is a a mystery that unfolds with a lot of suspense. And Mm -hmm. and it, you know, it has to do with kind of class and race and climate change and and other hefty topics. But it's also a very swiftly plotted, just like a fun kind of easy but chewable read. So that's for people mm-hmm. who are, are in a panicked mood and they want something that will vibrate on, on a similar frequency. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so for the second type of reader, I, I should preface this by saying that I'm not the biggest consumer of short stories. So if a book of short stories is able to kind of penetrate my native prejudice against the form, it means that the book is pretty pretty remarkable um i also can be really finicky about short stories i think often because i either like don't know why they existed or if they're really great wish they were just novels totally get it um so 
tell me tell me about this collection you like okay so this collection is called fraternity and Mm. it's by an author named benjamin nugent and it has this brilliant structure which is that uh all the stories take place within the same frat house on a college campus oh my god that's amazing it's amazing and one of the reasons i mean one of the reasons i and i and many other people love fiction is that it gives the reader this kind of supernatural ability to parachute into the consciousness of of someone else and in this case it's the consciousness of various members of a frat house um (laughs) which is like a perspective that i'm otherwise i guess profoundly alienated from i would say in my Mm -hmm. real life yeah i think that's a fair yeah yeah and yet these stories are about you know parties and sex and insecurity and ambition and I truly did feel while I was reading them that I was like a dude named Josh who was double fisting a can of Natty Light and a lacrosse stick, Um, which is just like, I think it's truly a work of genius for an author to be able to do that. And it's also just like really ballsy in 2020 for an author to be like, you know what I'm going to do is is write a collection of stories about a frat house, period, full stop. (laughs) That's a very good point. Now, Molly also writes this great newsletter that I am obsessed with. It's called Read Like the Wind. And a little while ago in that newsletter, she wrote about something that spoke to me very intensely. It's a very strange way of cataloging your life experiences, but it has infiltrated my brain in the most delightful way. So, of course, I thought I would also ask her to explain. You are going to love this. First, I should give credit to my friend, Lake, who is the one who introduced me to this system of thinking. The way that uh, it came up in conversation was, I was telling Lake about a period of my life a couple years ago when I had a really stressful job and I started to get <laughs> like psychosomatic symptoms. And one of the symptoms was that I was nauseous all the time and queasy and I started like barfing randomly. I'm sorry, this is like disgusting to cover, but it's it's required to get to the point of the story. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is this is the story I thought you would tell, but it is intense. Go on. Okay, so anyway, I in order to I tried everything. I tried like going to the doctor and getting abdominal ultrasounds and different, you know, medicines and stuff like that. And the nausea did not go away. And so I started carrying a plastic bag in my purse on my commute to and from work in case I needed to throw up from anxiety. <laughs> anyway, I was, t- I was telling my friend Lake this story, mm-hmm. and by the time I told her, it was a funny anecdote from my past um, because I was no longer at that stressful job. And, um, and she looked at me and she was like, oh, that's classic tier three fun. And I was like, excuse me? And she was like, you know, like the tears of fun. That's right. The tears of fun. We're talking T-I-E-R-S, not, you know, crying for a good time. So how many tears are there, you ask? There are four. Do you wonder if this might change how you might look at every experience from your entire life? The answer is maybe. Okay, I'll let Molly explain tier by tier. Okay, so first of all, there's four tiers of fun. Um, Tier one fun is when you do something and it's fun. So that's pretty simple. Normal, everyday fun stuff like, you know, reading scripts to yourself in a closet, rollerblading, making buttons, collecting stamps. Tier two fun is when you you undergo an experience that's not 100% fun while you're doing it. But when you look back on it later, you remember it as having been fun. I feel that way about reading books often, actually. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, I didn't love reading the book, but I love having read the book. Totally. Totally. That's a good example. Tier three fun is when something is not fun to experience. And it's also not fun when you look back on it, but it is fun to tell your friends about. Things like bad dates, a really weird time at the DMV, almost getting charged at by an adolescent moose on your way to your car after work. They all suck, but they're really fun to tell your friends about. I have to say, like, I braced for impact, y'all. And the sound I made, it was like, it was not at all intimidating. Thank God that moose got out of the way. And tier four funds, this is the final tier. And this Mm -hmm. is when an experience is not fun for you in any in any dimension at all. But it's fun for your friends to tell their friends about. (laughs) (laughs) which i can't think of a specific example of that one right now but i'm sure it exists for me personally i mean those tend to be about the like sex or bodily functions i think which are often sources of personal (laughs) humiliation but they can be really funny oh right they can be funny when they happen to somebody who's several rings removed from your social orbit yes yes i can think of one but i'm not going to say it out loud because i don't want to shame the friend i'm thinking about but yes (laughs) i know exactly what you mean tier two i think is the really helpful category because that pushes you to do things that you might not otherwise do because you know that you will look back on it as having been fun. And and in some cases, tier three fun too, because, you know, like if you're back in the pre-pandemic days, if you were set up on a blind date with somebody and you had some reservations about the date, you could say, well, this will definitely be tier three fun, possibly tier two fun, maybe even tier one fun. So I'm just going to go ahead with it. And, you know, thing other things like jumping in a cold ocean for a swim or something like Mm. something that might not seem immediately appealing but you know you'll look back on it and so you force yourself to do it with that in mind yeah I think I I love that because it not only maybe helps encourage you to do something like a little outside your comfort zone but I think it also helps put things in perspective where it's like even if it doesn't feel amazing right in this specific moment you still might be glad that you did this eventually and that counts for something too Absolutely. Counts for a lot. I love these tears so much. Thanks to Molly Young of New York Magazine. Be sure to subscribe to her newsletter. It is called Read Like the Wind. She is amazing. After the break, we've got one more way to cool your jets. That's in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. We've been talking a lot about burnout lately, partly because our book club choice this month is called Can't Even How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And it is, in fact, all about burnout. And a big argument actually in that book even is how much we use our phones and our computers, let alone our TVs. 
So recently I sat down with someone who wants us to stop staring at screens and do pretty much literally anything else instead. Tiffany Schlain is the author of 24-6 Giving Up Screens One Day a Week to Get More Time, Creativity, and Connection. And in it, she advocates for spending an entire day once a week without looking at your phone. She calls it a tech Shabbat. Every Friday night, Tiffany and her husband and her daughters put their phones in a drawer and don't look back. They are not allowed to look at those phones again until Saturday night. We don't wait till like the sun drops. We do it from Friday night to 5 p.m. on Saturday. Um, You know, I started doing it. um, My life was just feeling all over the place. I just felt so distracted all the time. I was never really present anywhere. And I had this really intense a uh, period where I lost my father and my daughter was born within days. And it was like one of those moments where I felt like life was grabbing me by the shoulders and being like, what are you doing? Like, what matters? I actually feel like the pandemic is a similar moment for people. What's important? What matters? And that's when we started doing what we call it our tech Shabbat, because it's just, it's very clear that there's no screens on that day. think we can all see the appeal of something like this. It sounds great. Like, (laughs) yes, I could use a break from Twitter. It's true. But I don't know. To me, it sounds so much better in theory than it does in practice, which is maybe part of the whole problem. But I don't know. I mean, particularly as someone who lives alone, I think about my phone not only as a distraction, but also as a really important source of connection. And I don't just use it to doom scroll Twitter. I keep my grocery list on there. It helps me find the fastest way to my friend's backyard. I can check the weather. I set my alarms on there. Now, Tiffany is more than willing to acknowledge all of those things. And she even says, you know, if you need to make adjustments to a day off plan, that is totally fine. But what's really important for the health of your brain is to just try something different. The reason why you have your best ideas when you're in the shower or doing the dishes in the walk is because it's called the default mode network where your brain is kind of processing what's already in there and making unusual connections. And right now we have no time for that. So I'm even now, you know, I was like listening to NPR when I was in the shower and I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to be in the shower. Like I try to remind, I'm going to take a walk and not listen to a podcast or not call my friends or just try to be in There's so much research to back up why that is so good for your brain. Think about your brain is this incredible thing that you need to be more, take more care of. You shouldn't be putting it on high stimulation all the time. And she says it's actually the best thing she's ever done. It sets you free. That's the word I always come back to as I feel liberated from the kind of the shackles of And of course, I don't feel that way the other six days. I'm like in it. I'm in the network. I'm responding. I'm checking Twitter. I'm on the news. I'm on Instagram. I'm boom, boom, boom. I'm like interacting with the world. And then I'm like, I exhale for this day of just, what am I really thinking about? What am I worrying about? What am I hoping? What am I thinking? What I don't know. I just think in such a different way. I feel like it's such a gift. Tiffany Schlein is the author of 24-6, giving up screens one day a week to get more time, creativity, and connection. 
Speaking of boundaries and screens, this conversation is super resonant with the chat I had about burnout with author Anne Helen Peterson last week. She wrote Can't Even, which is our October book club pick. I would love to invite you to listen to last week's conversation and then chime in. We'd love to hear from you whether or not you read the book, whether or not you're a millennial. We want to have a super holistic conversation about burnout. Uh, what it feels like for you. What do you think is really contributing to it? How you're trying to deal with it. Just send us a voicemail. The way you can do that is by recording yourself on your smarty phone and then emailing the file to nerdetpodcast at gmail.com. And then you can tune in next Friday, a week from today, to hear the panel discussion about the book and about burnout in general. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.